All right. Hello, and welcome to this very special edition of This Week in Intelligent Investing. I'm joined here by Mario Sibeli of Marathon Equity Partners. I'm lucky to be able to call Mario both a mentor and a friend. He's taught me great lessons in building the business side of a firm, and he's a master of scuttlebutt and has shared some of his secrets, though not all of them. His advice on accessing and building relationships with management, along with being creative and triangulating unique pieces of information, have been instrumental in making me a better investor. Mario's scuttlebutt is so uniquely awesome, it was immortalized in the book Netflixed. I had to look up the history, but we first formally met in late spring of 2016 over Grubhub, specifically around one of the several rumors about Amazon attacking the food delivery vertical. We'll talk more about food delivery later, but first, let's talk about some history. When we picked today, Mario told me that while we're recording on April Fool's, this is no joke, today is the 24th anniversary of you launching Marathon Equity Partners, almost at marathon length, measured in years and a truly incredible accomplishment launching at a pretty modest scale. You've been through so much in markets, performed through it all. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you did it and what you've learned along the way? Yeah, thanks. Uh, that, that's a nice intro. Um, and just to be technically clear, we, we, we launched the main fund on uh, April 1st, 1997. You know, the firm came later, but that was the main fund that still exists today. So the main fund uh, is 24 year old, you know, years old today. So, you know, I may have a shot of tequila while we're talking uh, to, to celebrate a little bit. So sorry. What did you ask me again? Yeah. So why don't you tell us how you did it, right? Incredible longevity through a stock market bubble in the early years, the dot-com uh, fallout afterwards, the housing bubble, and then crisis afterwards. Uh, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've learned along the way? Oh, okay. Geez, where do I start on that? I, I guess I would say, um, rather than go through all the details of the markets and what I've seen and everything, I'd kind of say I'm, you know, I'm a stock picker first. I've always been a stock picker. Um, the por portfolio management, you know, and, and the firm uh, came later. I still love kind of being in the trenches and analyzing businesses and investments. And um, you know, we've 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 done uh, a good job for our investors over time. Um, and you know, I got an, at least another ten years left in Maine, so I really uh, enjoy what we do. I I feel privileged to have done it for as long as I have. Um, you know, I in, in preparing for this, I did. I, I did put together a little bit of a of a, a list of things, a, a, a stock picker's guide for surviving 20 plus years in the business. So I can talk about some things uh, uh, there uh, um, if you want, or I can talk a little bit more about my background and how I came up. You know, you tell me where you want to go. Oh, I'm going to have to say you got to share the stock picker's guide first, and then we could talk a little more about your background. <laughs> okay. Well. Um, First thing I, I wrote down was, uh, you know, anchor with great investors. And uh, I think many of, them have, of whom will be individual investors and not necessarily professional allocators. Um, you know, not every fund is able to check all the boxes when it comes to attracting the big allocators. And, um, you know, individual investors will, will keep you in the game as long as you're doing a good job for them. So, um, you know, our 24 years uh, in business, um, has been supported by some really good investors that have stuck with us for an awfully long period of time. Um, you know, another thing um, kind of struck me uh, when I was thinking about this a bit is, you know, to sit and or associate with a great group of 
of, of individuals. And I think, you know, Twitter uh, potentially uh, allows this to occur more easily than it had in the past. I was fortunate to sit with a guy by the name of Bob Robotti at Robotti and Company. And um, Bob was a, a great person to learn from. You know, uh, he was CFO at Cabellian Company many, many years ago. And that's how I met him. Bob doesn't have a dishonest bone in his body. And it was just a great group of people there that I, I learned from. Um, there was a guy named Alan Weber who had, you know, one of the best track records on Wall Street you probably never heard of. A guy named Jeff Jacobowitz at Simcoe. Um, these guys, Ben and Zach at Spoo's House, who've gone on to do big, amazing things. And I started talking to them when, you know, they were still in college. But it was just a great, uh, great place to be. And I would say, you know, if you could find... Uh, a, a group of people to associate with uh, and, and others that are like-minded that, you know, challenge and listen and learn new things that that's, that's really important. And, and early on when I had my fun and launched it, you know, I launched it in this, this group of individuals and that was a, a really nice thing to, to do. Um, I'd say another thing that, you know, uh, is super important to put your investors first and never compromise on ethics. I think that's absolutely critical. Um, Know what you're best at, know what you're good at, find your niche and, and just mine it. Um, when you find your kind of risk, take it all day. And this is probably one, one of the harder lessons I've learned in my career on, on many occasions. You know, if I was to be self-critical, I think we've taken too little risk relative to our knowledge. You know, and I, I would say our investors probably don't fully appreciate how risk averse we've been over time. Um, and, you know, we've kept our gross exposure quite low relative to, to most hedge funds. Um, I would say, um, you know, maintaining an emotional balance in times of stress, you know, not getting caught up in the madness of the moment um, is, is very important. And, you know, I think intellectual honesty is, uh, is, is crucial in that at, at all times. Um, I would say uh, stay humble, you know. Is, is another one. I think that's super important. And, you know, when, when, when your job seems easy, you know, remind yourself of how difficult the task, you know, truly is. And when things seem absolutely hopeless, um, you know, remember you at your best self and uh, remember what it's like to be at the top of your game. Um, you know, another one I wrote down is to keep overhead low so you can write out the downdrafts. We've always kind of done that, even as we've, you know, kind of built the firm up and invested uh, people and uh, overhead over time. And, you know, in the last one I wrote, I kind of just said, you know, find a sustainable way to dissipate stress, exercise, hike, meditation, sports. Uh, you know, this job could, could consume you if you let it. So don't let it. You have to have some something out there away from this to, to deal with the, with the stress. So I don't know, that was an incomplete list of, of how to survive you know, two decades in the business. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So, you know, obviously on the first couple, I'm thinking, and, and I've seen this of you and from you, relationships are incredibly important, like building and nurturing nurturing relationships and thinking about them many years down the line. Um, maybe, you know, to expand on that a little, how do you feel that's, uh, you know, you talked about having great anchor investors as people, but also like associating with uh, other really sharp investors gave a couple examples and then FinTwit as well, you know, and I guess you unleashed modest proposal on, on us, the world. Um, <laughs> but maybe talk a little bit about like the role relationships have played, because it definitely seems to be something that stands out with you. 
Yeah, well, you know, look, I'd say as, as far as investments go, you know, I, I like to um, to develop good relationships with with management teams. And, you know, we we've had the pleasure of being associated with some great CEOs and teams over the years. And, you know, we didn't get access because we had uh, billions of dollars under management, could own a huge chunk of their stock. It was because we added value, because we're good shareholders. We asked thoughtful questions. We pointed things out. And did that. So I'd say a lot of the relationships that I've built, you know, I'd say we, we have been with management teams. You know, I, I probably have been, you know, less kind of, um, at least historically, less kind of interested in talking to other to other managers. I think Twitter helped helped that that, that out uh, a lot. Um, that part, um, well, I'm not sure what else to say on that. I, <laughs> How did you end up at Twitter in the first place? Because you were really pretty early there in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I try. I try to. I, I try to use you know new apps and new things. You know, kind of ahead of the curve. I'm not like the most bleeding edge, cutting edge kind of user of new things. But you know, I'm probably pretty early on on the spectrum, and I have four kids, and you know, I learned Snapchat pretty early on. It's kind of a really hard to. It's not non-intuitive to, to figure it out, but you know I get faster responses from my kids using Snapchat. So I've kind of figured out Snapchat a while ago. Didn't own the shares, so I don't know. Yeah, Twitter. You know, Twitter. I think I hit my 10-year anniversary not not too too long ago. We were pretty early, and then it went dormant and dark for a while, and then started using it again. And um, yeah, I just try to challenge myself and use new things and be aware of things as as best I can without going you know completely overboard. Yeah, you do a good job staying young with exploring some of these things and definitely see that. Um, one, one other thing that stands out to me, you talked about like finding your own setup and knowing your kind of risk. So like, is that something when you started 24 years ago that you had an idea of what your setup was? Or was there somewhere along the way that you're like, this is who I'm going to be. This is this is my setup and I'll I know it and I'm going to repeat this over and again. Yeah, well, you know, there's all sorts of different styles, and I and I never kind of look down on, on on a style that differs from me. I, I I guess I was one of the folks that that fit into that category of, you know, you don't have to have a lot of eggs in your basket. You you watch the basket pretty pretty closely. Um, so you know, I I've always been, uh, you know, I I can't keep track of thirty different things. I think I can keep track of ten things pretty well, and certainly five or six extremely well. And, you know, I always considered um, us to be about as good as anyone and, and on individual names, um, including the biggest, most successful funds um, that have a lot of uh, dollars they throw behind research and, you know, analytics and, you know, real-time data to track things um, that when, when I and my team get really focused on something, we can be as good as anyone. So that's always been a way that that I've done it. I think it's been kind of a natural uh, progression for me. I do remember certain companies early on in my career where I was kind of probably still developing, you know, uh, uh, portfolio management skills and, you know, risk controls and whatnot, um, where I saw an absolutely amazing setup. And I was like, well, what, where, where should I stop buying this thing? I mean, the, there's very limited downside risk. I've really good upside. It was a company in Chicago, John Naveen, a money management firm, and it doesn't make sense to go into all the details, but it was 
probably it's still considered one of the best risk reward trades I've ever you know made in my career. It, it was kind of a triple in two years, and I just kept buying more and more. And I think I had mid twenty five percent of the of the fund in it, and I was just like, where do I stop? I mean, I could have half my fund in this thing, and you kind of have to account for like you know things could clearly happen that you didn't count on and whatnot, and there could be. I guess the potential for fraud or malfeasance or something that would be com- completely unexpected. So I guess I, I settled in, you know, in the mid twenties at cost that that's uh, that tends to be my kind of upper limit. Yeah. And you take some pretty big swings. So that's a, that's an impressive one. I'm curious, could you like distill your kind of setup to a couple like key traits, a couple like key hallmarks that you, that repeat themselves from one to the next? Um, sorry for concentrated positions or for the more for like the kind of setup where you'd want to take a big swing. I think, um, yeah, mostly on those, I really have to be, uh, really convinced it's just some great, great downside protection that it's going to be hard to lose a significant amount of money that could be marked to market losses and whatnot, but the, the odds of a permanent capital loss being low with good upside. That to me is, is, is kind of the perfect setup. Now that that's different from, you know, Netflix and Stitch Fix. And Stitch Fix, of course, is a current obsession where I think there's potentially massive upside. But I, I, I would say that uh, there's clearly downside risks uh, uh, on that model. And, you know, Netflix in our portfolio, I think was never more than 10% of the portfolio. So, the things that we really swing hard on, I, I guess I feel that basically it's something we can't lose on and we got a darn good shot at making some money or I got some free calls or something that may pay off. Then to me, that's that's probably the best bet in the world. Now that, you know, that may be, um, that may be a little bit of a mistake at times because Netflix was a you know, I guess in theory, with hindsight, you look back and that, that was a super low risk investment. Look how much it's appreciated over time. But at the time, you know, no one's kind of painting, you know, there's not an exact answer of what the future is going to look like. So I would tend on um, on some of these more challenger disruptor growth kinds of companies to be more cautious um, uh, when establishing the position. Yeah, you had a fantastic thread on Twitter. I think it was maybe like a month and a half, two months ago about the uh, challenges you'll face as a long-term holder in some of these younger growth companies riffing off of your experience with Netflix. So like, um, how do you feel you know when it's time to like dig in and stay around versus time to move on to the next challenge? Like what, what sort of intuition have you developed for that over time? Yeah, that's a good question. Hard to answer with, with precision. You know, we we model things pretty um, in a pretty detailed fashion. Um, at the same time, like I don't want to be a slave to the model. I mean, like if, if you just really go back in time and you know some of the things that have really worked out well, it's like the mo- the model didn't matter. You do the model to justify it, um, but really the business fundamentals and and the team and the board and Know, how things evolved over time and how competitive that organization was it just it, it makes it makes the model like the, the at least the original model like kind of worthless over time it does it, it doesn't even matter but you know you don't know the future so you kind of map out some you know 
you know, minimal justification. And I would tend to always have a bias towards conservatism. You know, we've done it on Stitch Fix and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Stitch Fix later. I'm not trying to get us to jump to Stitch Fix now. Um, but we have some minimal level of profitability that we see in the out years in our model. And like we can anchor off that and that may or may not happen. The, the company may earn uh, more than that or less than that. We've modeled it to less than um, the management team's long-term guidance of, you know, that they've given on, on margins. Um, but they could also miss it by a mile and not necessarily in a negative way. They could grow a lot faster and there's a lot more investment. They had a lot more countries than we've modeled. We've only modeled the U.S. and the U.K. We didn't model a, a third entry in, in Europe, you know, a Germany or Netherlands or something like that, or a France, which is very likely at one point. So it could be that they don't hit their margins, but they have way more, you know, growth and revenues than, than we've modeled. So, again, I, um, I think at least the way we like to do it is to have, we, we, we want to have some um, quantitative justification for our interest uh, in the business. Um, but we don't want to be a slave to the model when you're looking at something that's kind of transformative and potentially changing, you know, in front of your eyes. That's such a good point. Because when I think about Netflix, like where in a model would you have cliffed the number of DVDs they send by mail and focused on, you know, subs and then inevitably ARPU on a digital streaming service. Like how, how could you do that? <laughs> yeah, it is. it's funny, right? Because it was, it was subscription by the mail and it was a hybrid service for some period of time, you know, and then it's, it's not a hybrid service anymore. It's a, it's a streaming service. And, um, that is, um, some of those things you just, you, you really can't model. You would make an, a, you make an attempt at it, but you, you know, you look back over a long period of time and it, it almost seems silly, but you know, here you are, you're sitting today. What do you do going forward? You know, well, well you, you try to find something to anchor off of. So it's, a, it's a worthy, it's a discipline. It's a worthy experiment. I mean, if you're just willy nilly kind of like, Hey, this sounds pretty cool. And there's no justification. You know, that's how you get into some of these companies that, yeah, if you, if providing great return to your investors is simply identifying the most interesting, fastest growing business, you know, this would be, this would not be a challenging business. You know, you could, it's, it's why the, the, you know, the new IPO that sounds really cool, um, you know, maybe FedEx at the right price is going to provide the same return with less risk from now plus three years. Like that's, it's just, that's, it's, it's the most competitive, interesting, difficult business to get right. It's, it's just identifying the neatest companies is just, you know, that, that's not a formula for success. Despite your use of Snapchat and all. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think I've seen you, I've observed you do this in interesting ways. One other position that we've overlapped with over time is PayPal. And even before COVID, you told me about building a scenario in your model for like a super uh, ramp in um, new net new users. Right. And that was something that you were thinking about, which I had spoken with many investors about PayPal and not many contemplated such a thing. And I thought that was really interesting the way you kind of like specifically we're toying with the numbers to see what it would do and how it would work and how you think about that. Yeah, we had four different scenarios, you know, and the, the share price, you know, I guess to some extent you might say we were uh, maybe a bit over arguing the case so that we could continue to own it. And, you know, the best scenarios had some big nonlinear ads. <laughs> this was not a prediction of, of a virus or anything like that, but we, you know, these are very smart, very innovative 
uh, people at the company and we, we looked at it and, you know, there were certain patterns that would reveal, you know, more transactions per wallet as you add wallets and the incremental transactions being profitable. You know, the, the, the difference in earnings per share on the out years were quite massive. So we, we did find a way to justify continuing to own it. That was more of a, uh, a hold decision rather than a buy decision. It should have been a buy decision with hindsight. Um, but yeah, you know, the world, you, you model many times, you know, even, even us, you know, we're, we're only human. I think a lot of times you end up modeling to the stock price. You know, it's kind of funny because in, in, a, in, a, in a weird way, you're modeling, you know, when something's depressed and beat up and Stitch Fix went down a bunch, you know, we kind of, we could, hey, we could, we could take down our assumptions and still justify it, you know, and it, with a bias towards conservatism, you would tend to do that. Well, that doesn't mean what you had before was was wrong. Maybe that's more right than what you're doing. I remember, you know, many years ago, uh, we when we were modeling uh, Netflix, you know, we just we just got it wrong by a mile. I mean, they just had there was such a much much bigger than we ever would have imagined. So it's it's kind of funny. Like again, it goes to like the you know the what value does the model provide? I suppose at the end of the day, it provides a framework and discipline for um, beginning to assess the business and a management team. Um, you know, and look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't frown upon people that are way more model driven and, you know, and don't want to talk to management teams and are only looking at numbers, you know, that there's certainly people that do that and, and, and they're good at it. You know, they, they might, they would, might tend to miss the transformation, you know, that's going on say, from DVDs by the mail to streaming or from, um, you know, an apparel subscription business to more of, to some extent, more of a traditional um, apparel retailer transformation that's occurring at Stitch Fix now. Um, and that was not a segue to Stitch Fix. Keep, keep asking away about, about my uh, uh, 20, 24 years running this fund. Well, no, I think it's just about time, but there's one more thing. Like you're not exactly a um, technology investor, but you've had a great knack for finding interesting opportunities in technology and recognizing when, you know, kind of regular things get impacted by tech. So, you know, I mean, talk maybe about what brought you to Stitch Fix and how you see that playing out over time. I, well, you know, I try to read every interesting S1 for starters and, you know, and the people I work with too, there's three of us looking for ideas, you know, would do the same. And it just stuck out as something kind of interesting to me. And personally, I was a, um, a truck club member for probably a decade plus. And I just kind of got a lot of value out of the service and it kind of made my life easier. And so this was kind of a more, I'd say, um, more data-driven um, version of that. Um, and so I, I, I kind of had some experience, I guess, as a consumer from subscription, uh, apparel. So, you know, I remember reading the, uh, the S1 and, and looking at it and think it was pretty interesting and it wasn't losing a lot of money. <laughs> um, like a lot of other companies were. So I'm like, that was unique. That's different. You know, then I looked at, um, you know, their, their ability to turn over their inventory was really impressive. They don't have to hold a lot of inventory to achieve the revenue they do. Their inventory turns are, are, are super impressive. 
Um, so that kind of stuck out. And then I just, you know, I put it up on my screen and read the next S1. And, you know, I'm, a, a lot of times I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for an, a problem to occur or something, some catalyst that gets us to look at it again. You know, I look at the people involved. Is it someone I know? Is there someone I could talk to? Maybe they'll have one thing to say that really gets my attention. I did a little bit of that with Stitch Fix. You know, I didn't necessarily have, you know, any green lights come back to me, you know, right away on that. Um, you know, and then I think last summer, one of the guys in the group, we had visited the company in December of 19, our, my last trip right before uh, COVID hit, um, one of the last trips. Um, and we kind of put it up, uh, you know, on the shelf. And then someone in the office mentioned again that we ought to look at it uh, last summer and, you know, perhaps um, the state of disarray and kind of traditional store-based uh, um, apparel retailing would be in such bad shape that, you know, digital players, online players might, might be advantaged. And we started thinking about it harder, started looking at it. And I, I you know, use, use the service. I, I used and abused the service. I asked for a, um, if they could give me a, a style pass membership, I think you have to be invited to it. And style pass allows you to get over the $20 hurdle. So they gave that to me and I just like, boom, I was hitting the service all the time. Kind of, you know, it, it just, it, it, it started, um, I started thinking it through, you know, the service gets better with more, more use. You know, I can't tell you how many managers I talked to that use the service once. I'm like, I didn't like anything. Well, I didn't like anything the first time I got it either, but I kind of kept going with it. The service does get better over time, you know, and that's like a, that's a survey of one. So it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if you, if you didn't like the clothes that you got, you'd have to talk to hundreds, if not thousands of people to kind of real, you know, form a real opinion on that. So I just stayed with it. And, you know, we, we talked to them, we made our pitch. We said, um, we're probably the kind of shareholders that you would like to, uh, to attract. We had some folks in common. So, and we had people that were, were willing to say nice things about us. Um, and, you know, and so they opened up some to us that we, look, I would say we, we've had to do a lot of work to understand it. It's not been easy um, by any stretch. I, I call it um, a narrow but navigable pass, path, sorry. It, it's, I see it, I see it pretty clearly, but I just don't think the path to success is, is easily observed from the outside. And it took us a while to get there. And again, when I'd say it's a narrow path, that means there, you know, you know, there's pitfalls to the left and right, but I think they can walk that path and, and they're going to get there. But I do not think it's easy. They, there's many aspects of this business, I think, that, you know, lend themselves to hot takes. You know, oh, it's commoditized. Oh, every, every e-commerce company has data scientists. You know, there, you know, there's a million people that do this, competing against Amazon, competing against Walmart, you know, everyone like that. I, th I think, um, you know, a hot take 20,000 foot view would, would, would render them in the, you know, put this in the nothing too special pile. Um, I, I, would, I, I would see how most people would come to that conclusion. They read the 10K and maybe listen to a conference call or two. Yeah, so you talk about a narrow path, right, and pitfalls on both sides. What are what are some of the pitfalls that you fear most, um, or that you think about most that you that you need to address in understanding the path from here? Yeah, a lot. A lot of it's just execution. It's a complicated business. Uh, no one's trying to do exactly what they're trying to do at scale. 
um, there's certainly other people trying to sell apparel and, you know, kind of more traditional store-based apparel and traditional e-com apparel is going to, you know, sell plenty of items. Um, but I don't think anyone's doing it in the way they're doing it. It's a complicated way. And just getting all the pieces right over time as they grow, at scale, having the right people involved, motivating people, uh, all that stuff. It's just, it's a, it's a difficult thing to manage. Just, just again, like the, the evolution of Netflix from, from DVDs, you know, now up to streaming globally, you know, it, it just took, it took great execution over a long period of time. And that in of itself is a, is a heavy lift. It's, it's not easy to do. Um, I, I, I don't think my fear of like, you know, Amazon's going to come in and copy this model and do it better than them. You know, I would say that that's, that's on the low side. Um, my, my belief is uh, the main risk is at, at this point, from my point of view is, is simply execution. Can they have, can the team get it done? Can they add new countries and then replicate their success in those new countries and do it, you know, in, in a, manner and fashion that is acceptable to the marketplace so it is allowed to perpetuate over time and of course having the right shareholders so you can get that done is uh, is is crucial that that would be it i just i don't it's not some specific thing that you know hey amazon is going to launch a competing service and the stock's going to go down 15 percent next week that i'm, I'm kind of long past that i just I, I i think they're doing it in a differentiated enough way um, that it's, it's kind of theirs to lose at this point, but it's going to need really good execution. That makes sense. And you had mentioned like some of the hot takes, and I know I was guilty of one in the early going that you were quite constructive in helping me rethink a little bit, which is specifically this idea that churn has been pretty high historically at Stitch Fix. And they've gone through a whole lot of more customers than are actually still there today. Um, and, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how you think of that instead of focusing on, on just churn and LTV of customers. Yeah, I think it, it's a real interesting topic. For, for starters, you know, I, I, I do think the way the company has done it is, is counterintuitive. It's not easy. Um, I think it would have been easier to do free, you know, free delivery, free returns, you know, pick, pick what you want, kind of just like everyone else does. I think they could have grown faster. They... Um, you know, a, a couple different aspects. So like, you know, people don't think about what, what's the churn at, you know, Nordstrom and, and Revolve and ASOS, right? They, they, they have this focus on churn because they've been subscription, but you know, any subscri subscription business, you know, essentially, you know, could be kind of thought of as, as, as traditional retail. It's like how many, what are your, who are your customers? You know, how much do they spend with you per year, per month and, and, and whatnot? So, I, I do think that they have a um, some naturally occurring churn when you're on subscription and you fill up your closet, you're going to turn off the service for a while and you might be completely satisfied with it and you could churn out as a customer and maybe you go back to the store or whatnot and do, a, you know, you go about your business and then you come back to it. So you have a, a bunch of, you know, inactive customers that, that have been satisfied with the service, you know, that just... That, don't have, they don't want another box sent to them, you know, this month uh, or next quarter. So it doesn't necessarily indicate dissatisfaction. You could have 
you know, a lot of people that come in and out of the service. This you know, Netflix showed this was true. And I think this is, this is true of, of Stitch Fix. You know, then, then you have to kind of keep in mind that, um, you know, that the service is evolving pretty rapidly. You know, they, again, this is, you know, kind of arrogant to some extent, which is tell us something about yourself. We'll send you five things. You don't get to see what they are. Sorry. And if you don't like anything, we get to keep your $20. That's not an easy way to acquire customers. And so they're, they're going to change that. They're going to show the, they're going to show you what's in the box first. That's a huge change. You know, a trunk club did that. I could see what was coming and say, don't send that, don't send that, replace it with something else. And then it would come. Um, and then they're adding the direct buy, which is going to be a bit more of kind of traditional e-commerce and it's going to allow them to acquire customers in a, in a different way. And so I kind of think more over when, when, as these new services uh, are added and it continues to evolve, you know, it's going to be, how, what's, what's my wallet share with my active customers? It's not going to be what's, what's churn. And I do think when you add previews and you add direct buy, by the way, I've said this in, in the tweet storm, I think I did on this, which is, you know, if they're not able to more precisely match consumers with apparel, then I have almost no interest in this company. My belief is that they are doing a better job than others at that and will continue to do a better job uh, over time. I think that when you add um, the new services in, it is going to bend these metrics. I think they'll they'll reactivate their uh, their list of inactive customers at a, at a higher rate than they have in the past. The customer acquisition costs will will will, will flex down. I think churn will, will flex down, and you'll get higher spend per active than you've gotten in the past. Uh, when you add uh, direct buy and um, stitch fix to the, the fixes together, um, you know, and I think eventually they're going to break the five in the box. They're going to go with more than five. So the amount of items sold per fix is going to be better. And if they're doing a better job um, than the next person that's trying to do what they do, and I don't even think there's anyone trying to do what they do at scale right now, um, you know, those are those are really hard things to to achieve, and it'll change the narrative from you know. Uh, what's the churn on this business to how much apparel they're selling? What, what, at what margin? What's their turnover? What's their profitability? So I think over time that, that, that will fade if I'm, if I'm right about that. And I do think it's a big ask to say, hey, I need the, the data in the past when um, the service was maybe geared to kind of a more narrow set of people to have that data yeah, I guess I was like, it's to me, it's a big ask to to, to expect um, some of their past metrics when the service I think appealed to more of a narrow base to capture kind of an evolving service that's going to address a lot more consumers uh, a lot better than it will in the future. That's now that's an interesting point. Like I feel just watching my wife experiment with Stitch Fix and Direct Buy a little, it gives them a whole lot more, and I kind of like this phrase lately, but surface area to experiment, to engage with customers. One of the things I found interesting was with direct buy, if you see something while you're logged in that you like and you don't buy it, then it disappears and you can't necessarily find it easily. So it creates like an impulse to act. 
Um, what are some of the other ways you think direct buy like meaningfully impacts the the nature of the business and the relationship they have with their customers? Yeah, I think it's, it's going to give them more cracks at their existing customers. It's going to give them a better crack at a lot of customers that might not have liked the service. They have a tremendous amount of people that filled out the, um, well, you know, their questionnaires and but never never took a first fix. And again, I think that, you know, that $20, like you don't get to see what it is and you have to invest $20 in this box. A, it requires a tremendous amount of trust for the consumers. And, you know, that won't be an issue going forward. I, I, I got to say, you know, one thing we had a call recently with, with someone on the engineering team and she said something that just absolutely like I just loved. She said, um, you know, I, can't, I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. She said, you know, Stitchworks works really well in soft goods where expressing preferences is difficult. And, you know, I just thought that was such an interesting way to 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 explain it. Um, and, and hopefully this will illustrate how how difficult the problem is that they're trying to solve. Um, imagine trying to explain your style and preferences to a personal shopper that you never met before. Let's say it was gonna be me, I'm gonna be your personal shopper. I mean, where would you start? How long would it take? What, what would you say? Oh, I like red. Well, here's my size. I mean, can you imagine how long, If and I wanna do a really good job and you're willing to invest time with me to, to get to this, for the, so I'm a good personal shopper for you. I mean, it would be a real challenge. It's really difficult to express, you know, what Elliot likes to wear. I mean, I see you got a T-shirt on today, but um, it's not a thing at all. So to, to kind of get that right, if you think about it, it, it is not going to be easy. So I, I, I really loved uh, hearing that. Um, and, you know, they might not even get it right, even when you give them, give them all the data. So... Um, I think to me that, that that was super interesting to hear from, from someone on the team. And it, it got me thinking about a, a, a lot of different things about how we buy big ticket items, how we buy low ticket items, you know, and to, essentially, I, um, I think this is a Sibeli original, but I was saying, uh, thinking the other day about um, the personalization aspect, traditional e-commerce um, outsources personalization to the consumer. So kind of like go on, you know, on a, a, a website, you know, sort by shirt, this style, color, this and that. And it's kind of like, you do the work, you figure it out. They're outsourcing that. Well, Stitch Fix is, is offering to do the opposite of that. You outsource it to us. You tell me something about yourself and I'll come up with your preferences. And I'll start with a much narrow, narrower list of, uh, of options that, that you'll be interested in. And I just, you know, I just kind of thought about that. And it, I, again, I don't think anyone else is really trying to do that. Like, sure, everyone's like personalization. It's an, it's an easy word to throw around. Uh, but for the most part, traditional e-commerce, they're, they're leaving it up to the customer to personalize. And that requires time, energy, and effort. Stitch Fix is flipping that, saying, we're going to do it for you. Outsource it to us. We're pretty good at it. And that potentially is a very, very valuable thing. When their feed is showing me things time and time again that I would like, and I have confidence in the fit, they know how much I, you know, what proportion and all that kind of stuff, size I wear, length, everything like that. And they're and they're showing me something new, not something, many things new every day. Well, that's just a that's a very 
valuable tool. Of course, they'll glance at that. So the, the frequency, by the way, on their app, when you're not just doing the auto shift, you might think about the, the difference in frequency that I might open that app and look at it and say, well, what, what's, what do they think I like today? What do you think? You know, then tomorrow, I'll do it. Just, it's, it's just, it's potentially, it's, it's really a game changer. I do think, you know, not unlike, you know, I don't want to keep torturing Netflix here, but like it, it, it could look so different than what it looks like now in a few years that it, it'll be almost unrecognizable. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting to me because like when we look at shopping online and we look at the digital world, effectively everything is full of abundance and you're overwhelmed by choice. Like I do find it overwhelming um, when I try to buy just about anything online, right? And you use certain things to try to like narrow your vector and focus it. So if I'm buying a TV, I'll probably search for like TV reviews from a couple trusted people and try to like narrow the scope. Obviously, I'd look at a Roku TV, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but, you know, in Stitch Fix case, uh, you know, apparel is especially hard because there are two challenges buying online. One is, you know, you're facing incredible abundance, but the second layer of the challenge is you still don't even know when it goes in the box and you get a shipping confirmation that when it comes, it's going to be the same on you as it, like, like with a TV, I know if I bought a good TV, I slap it on my wall, it's fine. But with clothes, I'm going to want to try them on and make sure they actually fit and that, you know, it goes just right. So, you know, I think that's really interesting the way you phrase it about kind of narrow, kind of flipping the way that e-com works. Um, and maybe one of the things I wonder about is, you know, you've talked about data. To me, the obvious things on data stand out where, you know, like they have a pretty good sense of what my shape is based on the measurements I give them, based on what I keep and what I send back. But how does like data inform stylistically what I'd want? Like, how does it fill the funnel of, of what I'd want to purchase in that in that way? Yeah, the, the last time I talked about this on a podcast, this was one area that we were uh, a bit less informed on. You know, I had, you know, my instinct told me certain things, but we've become more informed on this. And so it's a great topic to uh, to dive into. You know, they, they have 150 plus people dedicated on their data science team. And to me, you know, I, I've called um, this kind of money ball for apparel. These are not um, these are not fashion people. Not clearly, they have some fashion people there, but at their core, at their heart, originally, you know, these were data driven uh, engineers, data science people that um, took uh, very fresh approaches to kind of problem solving here. So I guess one of the things I, I like to say now, or one of the ways I like to think about it is that I don't think there's a bigger team of data scientists in the world working on apparel retailing problems, apparel selling problems, sourcing problems than this team. And that's an advantage. And it, again, it, it reminds me of Netflix. Netflix, they weren't Hollywood people. They weren't media people. They were problem solvers from the, you know, from the Bay Area. And they went on and did amazing things. I see the same potential setup here. And that that's going to be something that evolves over time. And I can't quite model that. I mean, I don't know what to, you know, how do you input that into a model, kind of like how we were discussing before. Um, but these are very bright people. And it's now very, it's abundantly clear to me that they they are now considered a potential destination by serious um data engineers, data analytics people. 
that they would compete at very high levels for talent, you know, along with, um, you know, top companies. And again, it's a, it's a little bit, I guess, ironic because, you know, well, <laughs> the person we talked to mentioned this to us, like it's, it's fair for me to say, which is you, know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say data scientists necessarily had the best fashion. So for them to kind of end up solving problems at, you know, at, at a apparel shop is kind of interesting, but they've clearly, uh, staked out a bit of a reputation um, here. And I just, when I think about compounding that over time, that's super interesting. You know, I've said this to some other people and applies to other businesses as well. You know, Stitch Fix doesn't have to be twice as good as the competition. You know, if they're 15 to 20% better than the competition uh, in, in a bunch of KPIs over time, they can just drive that into tremendous scale. So um, again, I would have very little interest in this business, if you know the next best competitor sending out a box had two items kept per per fix, and you know, and we're at two. If we're if we're at two point four, and the competition is killing themselves to get to you know two point one, like they can work with that. They can work with that over time. They're doing something better, and they're just going to keep driving that advantage, like on top of it, you know, on top of itself over and over again, and continuing to to innovate. It's just uh, I, I think that that um, that is a just a really interesting dynamic that they're taking a highly analytical, data-driven process to I would say an industry that historically, you know, hasn't attracted those kinds of people or had that kind of decision-making underlying, um, you know, their business. That's not to say that there aren't other companies in apparel that you know have smart people working on problems, but um, at, at, at this size, at this scale, um, you know, in the Bay Area, it's super interesting. It's super interesting to us how that could evolve over time. Yeah, and so like data informs, you know, your fit, informs what sorts of apparel uh, is curated in your fixes and in your feed on direct buy, but does it also play a role in advantaging Stitch Fix and how they acquire customers, how they engage with their customers and try to activate purchases? Like, you know, where what other layers do they apply data that, that we might not be thinking about? And that became very clear to me on the call that the, the, the expansion of the data science team is kind of permeating and through other areas of the organization, including customer acquisition costs. So it's starting to permeate, you know, all decisions that were made. I mean, you do you do see it in the inventory turns and like, look, I mean, I think the inventory turns slowed down last quarter, but everyone's anticipating like a big rush, you know, of, of business. So like, you know, they're, they're building up their inventory some to kind of be ready for kind of the world kind of uh, turning over and, you know, you know, anniversary uh, virus life. Um, but yeah, one of the things that became very clear to us is that it, it permeates the organization. And that wasn't just from one call. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to people that know, um, you know, former uh, employees and, and people that um, work closely uh, with this management team. It's part of their culture. It's in their DNA. They're not throwing darts. They're not saying, you know, not guessing, hey, I think red's going to be, you know, big this year, you know, and, you know, forest green is going to make a comeback. That's kind of not what they do. And I just love that. I think that that is a super important thing. It's it's hard to build a culture like that. I think they have. And you know, 
How do you think about the impact that COVID has had on them? Because when I think of their wheelhouse customer heading into 2020, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here and correct me if I am, but I, I think like working millennial woman first and foremost, and like there's probably a great degree to which their demand heading into 2020 was for clothes that are worn in the work environment. And then suddenly you end up in this like yoga pants and uh, t-shirt world. Like how, how did that impact them? And what do you think happens on the way out? And is there different data that they needed to fulfill their customers' missions before, af- during, and maybe, you know, soon to be after COVID? Yeah, well, you can, you can update your information. So if you've gained weight or lost weight, you know, you, 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 I think you would tend to do that, you know, naturally and easily. And that would inform them. You know, there's lots of signals that they get from their customers, you know, you know what they buy, what they keep, the uh, questionnaires, any changes there. I mean, that's that's kind of, the you know, the secret sauce, uh, uh, essentially. But, you know, one another very, very important aspect to me here is very different than traditional e-commerce is that, you know, I don't think of Stitch Fix as a brand really, you know, and it, it is a brand, but it's more of a service than a brand. And so, you know, it should work in other countries. It should work with any human, you know, male, female, uh, children, whatever. Um, it, it's not closely associated with a particular demo, despite, I think, um, the fact that I think a lot of their original customers probably were, you know, uh, females that that were busy and that were outsourcing kind of selection to them, and that was kind of their core market. But they've 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 added uh, they've added countries and they've added lines. And you know, last summer was super interesting. You know, the, the percentages of what they sold changed rather dramatically, and they rolled with that. And I do think, by the way, you could tap into this with some research. Vendors love them. They're very different. They don't do markdowns. When Stitch Fix pays you, it's money good. It's your money. Now, maybe that'll change at one point in the future, but they're not like the department stores where they're overbuying inventory and kind of, you know, having if something takes off, they have enough and then they can get the markdowns and all that kind of It's very, very different. So they do much more precise buys, you know, than, than other retailers. And the vendors appreciate that. And when they, they really like getting... You know that hundred cents of the dollar and keeping it—it's it's theirs to keep. It allows them to plan their business much better. So one of the things I really like is that again, you kind of forward roll this over time. Is that you know as they get better, they're going to you know the vendors will have to work. Certain vendors will work better with them and the, to add speed and efficiency and get better and better and better, be more responsive to the consumer base. It's just something that I think over time is again is is another way for them uh, to win. Um, and I do think that, look, their, their inventory models, they, they position the inventory. Look, they've turned it over pretty nicely. So, you know, their gross profit dollars are, are you know, to me are, are, are cash good. There's a lot of cash that the business spends off. But, you know, over time, you know, I think they're absolutely going to be adding different inventory models. So, you know, maybe they maybe a little bit look like QVC, you know, QVC, you, 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 you rent time from QVC guaranteed minimums percentage of sales and they don't have to position the inventory you know i think their core business will have them continuing to position inventory over time but their feed if you will um will evolve and will probably have sponsored 
uh, listings and other things where they're not positioning the inventory themselves so they can offer a greater selection and a lower capital intensity. I mean, I think that is absolutely in the cards for this company. Again, if they're doing a better job, if you didn't believe this and I didn't, if I don't believe it and you didn't believe it, like you wouldn't want to own shares in the company. If they're not doing a better job of getting um, units in front of you um, that are more appealing than the next person, then it's all for naught. It, it doesn't matter. I believe that they're, they're capable of doing that. I believe they're going to do a better job of doing that. And if, and if they are over time, um, that's going to really open the door to uh, alternative kind of inventory uh, models for them, which would be just absolutely beneficiary, including sponsored listings, you know, straight up ad revenue over time. We've we've built in, you know, a small amount of high margin ad revenue kind of in the out years of our model. We think that that's very, very realistic. Yeah, you know, that's all really interesting. You started with saying that, you know, Stitch Fix is a service, not a brand. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, it's a great service for a customer. But really what you're talking about is it's also a service for the apparel brands in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I also think that's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great way to move inventory. It's a great way to help plan your business. And also it's a customer acquisition tool. You know, you, you, you know, they, they tell you what the brand is. Um, and when you get it, you clearly can see the brand. And if you, you know, most all these brands, you know, the private labels would, would be the case, but all the other brands that they sell would, you know, would be trying to sell directly to consumers. So, you know, to some extent, you know, um, Johnny O and Faraday, you know, they may, they, they, they could put some inventory out and they have with Stitch Fix and it's a customer acquisition tool for them because they, they have a really good product. Yeah. I'm going to go to their site and maybe buy some directly, which I have done, you know, in a, in a natural way on my own, not just because we're, you know, I'm analyzing Stitch Fix. So I do think it's it's also a customer acquisition tool for for some good brands. It it it, it really has the potential. Look, part of me just is like thinks of them getting more scale and more scale and adding more overhead and hiring that that incremental, you know, data engineer and in, incremental, um, you know, bright motivated, you know. Uh, fashion person and, and marketing person and just that the, the organization could really, really kind of hum over time and, and be a difficult one to dislodge from a from the high ground uh, in apparel. I do not think it's going to be easy. This is when I, I when I was on the the other podcast um, with, with with Patrick, I kind of talked about the DC. So it, I don't think it makes too much sense to talk about the DC. But that, I guess that gets into the the whole you know, the multitude of things that, that have to be run, run well uh, for this thing to work. Um, they, they, they have a canvas. They have a very nice canvas to kind of paint from. You know, they have a nice business that's allowed them to add scale. You know, they make a little bit of money. They lose a little bit. You know, they're kind of like, they're not fun. They're not needing, they're not in danger of needing funding. Um, and from here, what, what can you do with it? You have all these smart people. You have this this big data analytics team trying to solve problems that, that most companies are trying to solve, you know, where can they go? What can they do? How can they make their service better? Um, and we've been very impressed you know, with, with, with the, everyone we've met has been super bright, super motivated, really creative here. Um, I, I'm as impressed as, as I could be with a, with a team. 
Yeah, that's all really interesting. I wonder, you know, when I think about like PayPal, one of the things that's gone right with it, issuers started um, steering their own uh, cardholders to use PayPal to make their credit card the first choice within the digital wallet. Do you think there's a path to them having brands steer people to engage, you know, apparel brands steer some of their customers to try to find them on Stitch Fix first? Like, is there is that a possibility or do you think brands would be more focused on trying to pull people uh, into their own DTC channels? And part of what I'm wondering about in general, like more high level is, is there a path to them like driving down customer acquisition costs over time? Yeah, well, for, I definitely think there's, you know, by by adding the, by adding previews and adding direct buy, which is kind of more traditional e-commerce, but hopefully our, our, our better touch at figuring out what you want. Those are definitely um, things that should, you know, benefit customer acquisition costs over time and open up the, you know, the addressable market. So remind me what you asked the other part of the question. First part of yeah, the question. well, brands inevitably have some sort of incentive, like given Stitch Fix is a service, not a brand itself, to try to steer people into, uh, engage, like customers to buy their brand through Stitch Fix. Yeah, well, I would say, you know, um, you know, I, I kind of think, you know, there, there'll be a, um, you know, first and foremost, you know, a, a brand would love to sell directly off their website and, and, not, and not have to get told by anyone else. They'd love to do it without Facebook or Instagram or Google kind of getting in the way. But, you know, reality is, you know, they have their whole business they have to manage and they're going to have some high cost, you know, customer acquisition channels and lower cost ones. They'll focus on the lower cost ones, but they have fixed ex- expenses to, to leverage just like anyone else. So they're not going to, you know, they ignore high cost channel at their own peril. That could cost them over time. So, you know, I would say that Stitch Fix is probably a higher cost channel for some of these brands, but not an unreasonable one to work with, um, especially given what I kind of said, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not looking to charge back and, and, and do the discount. So it's, it's kind of money good. And I do think, you know, they're going to have something to say, which is, if I'm a particular brand and I'm coming out with a line and I'm a well-known brand, like Stitch Fix could go to them and say, we have 250,000 people that we think would love to buy that. And we could, we can pinpoint them better than you sell through us, you know, here, pay, pay for a, a sponsored listing up here. We'll put you in the upper left corner. You'll be the first thing that, that they see when they log on and you're going to, we're going to find them better than you. And we, they, they know us, they trust us. They're great customers. We're going to, we're going to put half of them in your, you know, in, in your new, you know, outfit or new style or, or whatever you're doing. Um, absolutely. I think that, that's a business model. They may not even have to own any of that inventory. Maybe they're just taking a commission back or, or in, uh, you know, advertising or something there. Um, so I, I think that is, uh, that is a, a likely outcome as, as they continue to, to evolve, yeah, it, it would be a higher cost channel. I mean, certainly, you, you would love to sell directly off your your own website without anyone interfering, of course. But you know, the world's too competitive for that to happen. We all know that, right? That's they cool. could literally spoon feed the demand to them, right? Yeah, that, that's 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 why we own some of the gatekeepers like uh, Facebook and, and whatnot and other things, right? There you go, right? Customer acquisition is uh, the revenue opportunity for Zuckerberg. Um, how do you size up the valuation here? How do you how do you size up the risk reward and and all that? Yeah, you know we have some you know pretty 
chunky um, numbers that we look at kind of on, on the out years, you know, something in the order of five to 600 million of EBITDA, you know, uh, a few years out, it, it, it may play out that way. It may not. It may have, a, you know, a lot more revenues and, you know, so choose to su- suppress profitability, you know, um, and, and keep going forward. I, I, I certainly think adding new countries in the near term will suppress overall profitability, but, you know, you, you can kind of do the analysis there we back some of that out. Um, so, um, you know, if they do five or 600 uh, million and adjust the EBITDA in a few years, you know, I kind of think that that would be a, you know, probably provide a pretty darn good return from here. So we kind of have that mapped out in our head as something that we think is reasonable. That's, that's using a below, well below the margin um, guidance that they gave um, for, for long-term margins. So I think, you know, there's there's some uh, conservatism in that, um, you know, and that 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 assumes a certain growth rate in direct buy, which is be higher than the fixes. Uh, that d- assumes a declining, you know, all the details again. I don't think this is a good format to go over all the details, but it kind of assumes a declining uh, rate of growth uh, for fixes. It assumes some uh, depre- annual depreciation in in the the price of the units that they sell. It assumes a bit of a lift as they break, you know, I think potentially break, you know, the five barrier on, you know, how many things are in the fix, a little bit of lift in units per um, fix sold, you know, we kind of net it all out and, you know, that's, uh, that, that's what we get. So to me, that would, you know, be a uh, five or 600 million EBITDA, uh, you know, in three to four years would be a, uh, a pretty good outcome, but, you know, they could they can miss it by a mile, or they could do better than that. Um, you know, my instinct would be that if they miss it, it will be because they've entered more markets and there's more growth and there's more investment going on um, because it's it's working. And you know, so you you could achieve less profitability than that, but you know, have it become more clear to investors that this is, you know, this is a retailer uh, that's going everywhere going to a lot of different places. I do think, look, I'll just flat out say it. I think I think they have a chance of being one of the biggest apparel retailers in the world. Like they're gonna, they're gonna be up there. They're gonna be one of the big ones. They have a shot at that, a real shot at that. I'm not saying it's 100% absolutely going to happen, but I think they have a real shot at that. That's the opportunity. That's what they're playing for. One of the biggest apparel retailers in the world, including and- store-based. It's a pretty massive ambition. And so, you know, a lot of what you're saying boils down to their ability to execute on it, right? And uh, that comes down to the people and some of the people involved. So maybe talk about management, leadership, and, you know, some of the key figures who will be kind of guiding the way there. Yeah. So, you know, they, we, um, before I even get into that, you know, they have almost 6,000 stylists. I mean, we think, I think that we have them that we think that costs 150 to 160 million annually right now. I mean, can you imagine? That's like a, that's a big ticket. And, you know, again, they're very analytical and very data driven. I'm sure they've done the test. You know, they, they, they have the recommendation, um, you know, from their, from their algos and they could say, could we do this? Could we do the same, the same outcomes, same key rate without the stylus? And I, I think it's, it's quite apparent that the stylus add value. 
So could you just imagine for starters that much spent annually from this company if you kind of want to be in this business, assuming that the algorithm alone won't get you the result that you want? Because if it did, you know, my instinct would be is that would be exactly how they would do it. And it's not how they're doing it. Um, so that's just an interesting investment they have to make kind of every quarter, every year um, that, that appears to be um, justified. Yeah, the, we've, you know, we've met with Katrina. Uh, we've met with Liz Spaulding, Dan Jetta, the CFO. We met with their head um, of, of U.S. operations, uh, Rufus. Um, we were, you know, got pretty friendly with uh, Mike Smith, who, who left the company. We met with one of their um, data analytics uh, engineers recently. So we, we've met with a lot of people, and that's just, you know, through them. We've, we've done other research on our own, and it's a it's a talented group. Again, I'll just summarize to say I don't I don't think there is a group this big, this smart, this motivated working on apparel retailing problem solving like that at, at, at scale. There's, there's certainly big groups working on other things uh, like, you know, the Oculus at, at, at Facebook and, and how to turn Instagram into a mall. Um, there are other groups, but I don't think there's another group that's this big dedicated to solving problems specifically in, uh, you know, apparel, e-commerce, retailing. Right. And, and if there is, I hope someone tells me what it, who it is and, you know, what that, what that company is. Yeah, the stylist point is huge because, you know, we started on Stitch Fix. You mentioned the hot takes that you see from so many people. And one of the hot takes is like, well, they talk about all this data. And then at the end of the day, a stylist is involved in sending people their fix. Like, how could it be data when you need a human? And, you know, one of the concepts I'd been exposed to was the Kasparov principle from the chess grandmaster about this idea that, you know, the question's not binary. It's not um, computer or human. It's when you add a human, uh, a human's capabilities and a human's expertise to really good data, the outcome is much better than either or. And that kind of debones the hot take that like, how could this data company rely on stylus? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what happens, you know, um, that there's a ranking, uh, you know, there's a predictive ranking and then that ranking is ranked from most likely to be kept to, you know, less likely to be kept. Most of the stylists choose, you know, from, from that top 10. Um, so there's some deviation, but not a tremendous amount. So, you know, it, it, you know, they, they look, this is ro robots don't make good short order cooks, you know, <laughs> probably never will most likely. You know, don't quote me there. Um, there's still value that's added by reading the comments uh, and looking at things, and you know, you know that that makes sense to do. And again, it's it's a very big investment. I mean, I I, I talked about on on the podcast um, just the, the silly silly little fact on Patrick's podcast, just to be clear, that that they that they take apart all the apparel so it's ready to be tried on. It just sounds so silly. But if you just think about how much time and convenience that adds, you know, if you if you did it the other way, you know, you would still be taking the stuff apart and just getting it ready to be tried on. Stitch Fix, you've already, you could in theory, try it on 
send it back in the box. And now the other person would be like, okay, now I'm ready to try it on. They spend a lot of money for that little win. It's a little win. You can, it's kind of when I think about that, like it reminds me of the, um, the stylus. That's a lot of money for maybe a little win, just a little win. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, that's like, that's how, that's how you get to live against Amazon. <laughs> that's how you get to stay alive against some pretty darn competitive folks as, you know, as we've talked about from time to time. Absolutely. That, that's interesting because like, you know, I wonder, it makes, makes me wonder, was that something that they did from day one or did they have a point where they're like, let's test this and see what return rates are like uh, across, you know, AB tested, see which group has a better rate of retention with, with what they order. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that I don't know. I don't know the history there. I, 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 I could guarantee though that they did a lot of AB testing. I don't know who came first. Excuse me, the algo or the stylus. I guess I would guess the stylus, but I actually don't know the answer to that one. Good question. Got it. Okay, so let's let's close the loop here. We just talked about competing with Amazon. And at the very beginning, I talked about how we met over Grubhub during one of those moments when people were talking about Amazon's competition challenging Grubhub's competitive position. Um, but you know, food delivery, while Grubhub is kind of resolved in its own way is still top of mind for you. You know, I've seen a couple recent tweet storms and you have some interesting thoughts on the space. So maybe you want to want to go over a couple things that that you're thinking about there. Yeah, well, I guess just flat out, I, I, I think Takeaway probably um, is the cheapest scale delivery company in the world today. So that's kind of interesting. They, uh, they're asset rich. They have some really good assets. You know, and the pro forma company, right, is is going to have uh, a great German business, a great Netherlands business, uh, a very good UK business. They have a tremendous Northeast business. And, you know, they have an absolute gem in, in New York City. And I do think urban areas and urban environments are, you know, are, are not going to permanently disappear. So, I, you know, I, I do think the relative growth rate of, of the urban, generally speaking, marketplace probably will compare more favorably to the logistics slash suburban growth rate that we've kind of seen over over 2020. But it's um, it's I think it's deeply undervalued. I, I don't think a lot of people would uh, would would necessarily um, disagree with that. Um, you know, they might say, "Well, oh, okay, it's cheap and undervalued, but what are the catalysts?" I might say, "Yeah." You know, maybe maybe there's some. You know, maybe you're right. There's uh, we've identified something that's you know cheap with some super attractive assets in a business. I think whose end state, you know, everyone's playing in it for a reason. You know, I think there's the belief that the end state will be uh, a consolidated, very attractive business that's tolling kind of operators. You know, for for on-demand delivery. Um, but I. You know, I would say that there are potentially some some catalysts here as well, which which makes it interesting. I think simply closing the club Grubhub deal, sorry Grubhub deal, um, will add some clarity to the to the situation. We do have a CEO um, of the pro forma company Yitzi that um, you know has a fairly big stake, and, and he doesn't strike me as the type of uh, CEO that's going to be okay with the shares languishing for, for too too long. Um, I mentioned the relative strength of the urban marketplaces versus suburban logistics operations. 
that's that's likely to improve over the course of this year. Um, and you know, I think another one is just the expansion of of, of the addressable market to grocery, you know, local commerce, on-demand convenience commerce, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then likely at one point, you know, faster delivery times or some move from Amazon. I don't think it's just going to concede this space to GoPuff and DoorDash with, without a fight. It 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 opens the, the door to another round of M&A in the space. So I do think ultimately, you know, some of these properties will, will change hands and consolidate and you'll, you'll, you'll get to that end state at one point and that end state is attractive. So um, I, I think this is an asset rich company that's undervalued with some, I'll call it, you know, maybe soft catalysts. Um, I mean, just another really interesting thing is that they, they, they have some big, smart, motivated, constructive shareholders um, take away. The pro forma company is going to have some great shareholders that I think are going to, um, you know, that they're, they're not going to be okay with the shares being perpetually undervalued. And I don't think the CEO will be either. So, you know, I, I think there's some moves that, that could be made and, and things they could do to kind of uh, highlight the value. So I, you know, I view it as one where there's like, you know, probably pretty limited downside risk, um, all other things being equal. So that's, that's attractive. And look, I, I'd say look, to me, there's, there's no doubt. One of the things we do is we kind of look at like, what's the underlying profitability? The marketplaces are profitable. New York City is profitable. You know, um, London's profitable. Um, some of these countries are, are profitable. And I'm kind of doing, you know, pre-overhead contribution margin. These are profitable businesses. So you can make some assumptions saying, well, what if, what's this kind of a steady state analysis look like? Let's, you know, let's give up on, on hyper growth. Let's get down to the core business. You know, what's more of a kind of sustainable span? What would, what, what would the margin be? And, you know, I think at this point, takeaway, you know, is, is, well, is well covered by that theoretical value. You know, I think that theoretical value, you know, I'd say on the low end, you know, some of these properties would be worth, you know, 12 times that kind of underlying contribution margin and like easily 15 times on some of the key, mark, you know, like marquee properties that they have. You know, that gets us to like 105, you know, roughly on, on, on takeaway versus the current prices, which is a, which is a pretty big discount. Um, so you, you're left with, you know, a situation um, where uh, I think the companies are trading at a substantial discount to kind of a, you know, theoretical underlying profitability basis, which a strategic acquire would be, you know, the strategic acquire wouldn't need all the corporate overhead. You know, you, you add a seamless New York City, you know, into an existing operator's business, there's a really nice payback in that. And I do think, um, you know, that that the the window, the opportunity for some additional transactions, additional MA in the space will happen. When, when you know, when as more people wade into the space and all these guys are, you know, all these operators are kind of be like, well, we'll fetch anything for anyone anywhere. That really ex expands the market. So I, I think it's uh, it's overly depressed at at these prices. I know you know it well, so you know, we, we could 
we, we can have a real conversation about this one. <laughs> yeah, don't think I didn't notice you said seamless about New York City, too. I see what you did there. Um, you know, one of the big things I wonder about when Yitza went and won the German market, you know, he was basically anointed the uh, champion of the entire space. He was given the world's uh, highest valuation, you know, whatever metric you want to measure, like EBITDA. Uh, oh, sorry, like price to uh, EBITDA, um, price to sales, uh, EV to GMV, whatever it may be. And then, you know, with COVID, every company in this industry was treated tremendously uh, by the market. Everyone got their valuations marked up from where it was, and takeaway was no different until they announced the acquisition of Grubhub. And then, you know, the question overhanging the entire space was, is this a defensive move by takeaway or is this an offensive move? And, you know, what does it mean? And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I guess um, I don't feel the need to pontificate uh, on that at this point. The, the, the deal is probably a done deal and I'm, I'm evaluating what I'm buying today you know, at, at current prices, and I think I'm getting a, a really good deal. I, I'm not exactly sure why uh, Takeaway wanted to acquire Grubhub. I think they got some great, great assets. Um, you know, and you know, I, I think the marketplace was probably wanting to see kind of more synergies. And I certainly, a year ago, would have would have liked to see you know a merger kind of in the U.S. with the you know a true elimination of the competitor. But it it didn't happen, and now I'm just kind of evaluating today, kind of. You know what's the opportunity? What's the valuation? What do I think it's worth? And again, they have some they have some tremendous assets. You know, if you, um, you know, I think using some estimates, we think are reasonable. I think seamless New York City is, you know, in, in Postmates, we're we're probably you know somewhat similar sized. If you kind of put, you know, Postmates valuation, you know, plus you know maybe two and three quarters of you know billion on the iFood stake that takeaway owns. Um, you know, this is this is well over a quarter of the capitalization, the pro forma capitalization of, of of takeaway. That's just two things. That's seamless New York City, which clearly people would love to own. And I said 15 times. Well, people would probably pay more than 15 times for that. Could you imagine adding that into a break-even, say, logistics business, kind of in the tri-state area? You know, that marketplace of profitability without the corporate overhead on that probably pay more than 15 times, you know, for that. Um, those those two things, seamless New York City alone, plus iFood at, you know, a potential, you know, market value, you know, that's over a quarter of, of the enterprise value here. And you'd have, you got Germany, you got Netherlands, you got UK, you would have a lot of other cities, you know, in, in the US. It, it's, it, it's too cheap. And, you know, the, the marketplace has been, Somewhat enamored by the logistics player, though maybe a little bit less recently. <laughs> and maybe now it's the uh, first-party, fully integrated, you know, direct seller, dark store, GoPuff model. You know, that's that's true first-party now. Um, but I, I do think there's an underappreciation of the marketplaces. And you know, the thing number one, observation number one. When Uber Eats was first attacking this business many years ago and was going to, you know, quote, like kill them, crush them, was this is a sticky app. It still is. It's a sticky app. 
you know, look at eBay. That's a sticky app. Oh, eBay is not growing. eBay lost on the Amazon. You're like, yeah, all those things are true, but it's still there. It's still churning out profitability. Actually, they had a pretty good year last year. Not bad, right? And, you know, this seamless app will be used. It'll be used two decades from now in New York City. I'm sorry. They probably won't even change the brand. It's a sticky app. It's valuable. We're all focused on the end state. And Takeaway and Yitzi have a very nice opportunity from the current levels because the market is um, underestimating him and the marketplaces, you know, at this point. So he's got a nice, he also has a nice canvas to, to which to paint a masterpiece. All right. Well, on that note, I think uh, we'll, we'll take a wrap here. Congratulations on 24 years. Really nice canvas that you've painted and keep <laughs> painting to this day. And thank you so much for your friendship and mentorship along the way. It means a lot for you to join me here today as well. Yeah, I, I got to throw you a bone. I mean, obviously, uh, um, I appreciate being on here and whatnot, but I, I will say that, you know, you've been one of the uh, um, more creative, brighter stock pickers that I've come across on on Twitter. So it, it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure talking to you. It's, um, it's not a uh, burden by any stretch. I, I, I enjoy our conversation and hearing your ideas. And I, I should have listened to you uh, on a number of things. Uh, over the past couple of years that you've done so well on. So congrats to you. Uh, thank you. Well, likewise, can't catch them all, right? <laughs> all right. <laughs>